Hi, Dave Emery here. This is for the record program number 1273. Interview number 12 with Jim D'Eugenio and Dr. Gary Aguilar about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on November 30th of the year 2022. And it is my special privilege to welcome back to our airwaves, Jim D'Eugenio, the author of, among other titles, Destiny Betrayed, which we covered in 25 one-hour interviews in 2018 and 2019. And he was also selected by Oliver Stone to do the screenplay for JFK Revisited and uh, wrote the book that uh, entails the, or incorporates the transcripts of both the two- and four-hour versions of the documentary, as well as supplemental information. And it is our special privilege to be joined in this talk and probably the next one by Dr. Gary Aguilar, who not only is featured prominently in the two- and four-hour documentaries, but has done some groundbreaking work on the medical and uh, autopsy evidence in the JFK assassination. That will be the major focal point of these discussions. Jim, Gary, welcome back to our airwaves. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, As I was reflecting on the material that we are going to be covering, this will overlap with what we spoke about, with with what uh, Jim and I had spoken about previously, a term suggested itself to me, which uh, encompasses the malfeasance, which we will be looking at, uh, committed by both individuals and groups of people or agencies, and over a period of many, many years. You know, one hears the term deep state. And what we will be looking at, what we'll be covering in these uh, programs about the medical evidence are the operations, I think, of the deep state. But the term that came to mind, uh, initially, again, it struck me as grimly inappropriate and perhaps in bad taste. And then, as a reflective further, I think it is uh, only too appropriate, and that is the term skullduggery. And uh, we will be taking a look at uh, not only the malfeasance, but in particular a number of things with regard to JFK's head and the processing of forensic information in connection with that. Uh, Let's start with the basement of Parkland Hospital on November 22nd, 1963. Uh, We have recently been... uh, presented uh, visual vignettes of federal agents confronting citizens at various points uh, in on the January 6th or during the January 6th insurrection. In the basement of Parkland Hospital, there was another confrontation between Dr. Earl Rose and some Secret Service agents. Uh, if you would uh, fill that in for us, Jim and Gary. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll just do the general, then Gary can go ahead and, and put in the details. The By all standing law, the autopsy on President Kennedy should have been done uh, in Dallas, okay? Because there wasn't any superseding law at that time, all right? And in fact, Earl Rose, who was the uh, medical examiner, uh, for that area at that time had his office right in Parkland Hospital. All right. And so he very responsibly, uh, said that we're going to do the autopsy now that the president has been pronounced dead. But for whatever reason, and I hope Gary can fill this in more, there began to be nothing less than a showdown, uh, between Rose and the Secret Service, all right? And the Secret Service got really tough uh, with Mr. Rose, and they essentially they essentially overpowered him. They just knocked him aside, okay? 
and proceeded to take the body illegally, you know, out of Texas. All right. And William Manchester, in his book, Death of a President, he interviewed several people who were witness to this event. And he kind of left it wide open. He says, if you listen to some people, this kind of stuff happened. If you listen to other people, it really wasn't that bad. He doesn't really, he, he obviously doesn't want to come out and say just how brutal the Secret Service was with the Earl Rose. Okay. But it was, it was pretty bad. Uh, Gary, yeah, Jim, you you... To... Go ahead. yeah, no. Uh, uh, Jim has given us a very accurate outline of the events. <clears throat> now, mind you, uh, Kennedy had been shot dead by Texas law. There was no federal statute against shooting presidents then. So Texas law applied. And Texas law required that in the event of a homicide, as, you know, as uh, Kennedy's was clearly a homicide, that an autopsy be done and it'd be done in Texas. Uh, Earl Rose insisted that it be done that way. And he not only was he shoved aside, there were reports that he was pushed up against the wall. Guns were drawn uh, and uh, the, the Secret Service essentially threatened him um, and uh, basically took the body, uh, uh, whisked it back to Washington. Uh, and uh, thereupon the body was uh, deposited uh, at the request of, uh, of Jackie at a at Bethesda Naval Hospital for an autopsy. Um, and she picked that because Kennedy had been a naval officer, and uh, uh, when she was given the options of where to go, she said, well, since he was in the, in the Navy, let's go to the Naval Hospital, and they do the autopsy there. It was a huge mistake, unfortunately. And, 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 and l- l- let me add something. I think Gary would agree with what I'm about to say. You know, if the law would have been abided by, I believe things would have been different. Earl Rose was a pretty well-respected pathologist, okay? And there wouldn't have been all the military brass that (laughs) weirdly funneled in to Bethesda that night, which, as we'll see later, had an impact on what was going to happen. Yeah, you agree with that, Gary? No, there's no question about it. Earl, Earl Rose was a forensic pathologist, and he was in a place where there were lots of gunshot deaths. He had enormous experience in doing autopsies, forensic autopsy, proper forensic autopsy, which is a whole order of specialty uh, uh, greater than just general medical autopsies. <clears throat> General, general pathologists do autopsies on people who die of natural deaths, uh, heart attacks, liver disease, cancer. Uh, uh, pathologists do autopsies on people who die of unnatural deaths, gunshots, knife wounds, poisonings, that hangings, that kind of thing. So a forensic pathologist is what you want in a situation where you have this. But they took Kennedy back and, had, and as you point out, Jim, had, had they, you know, had the autopsy done there, the issues that have come up would have been resolved and they would not have been resolved under federal government control as they were in the Kennedy autopsy. Uh, Earl Rose was a, a city employee working for the city of Dallas, uh, but nevertheless was, I think, quite independent of the kind of uh, pressures that the autopsy pathologists who did Kennedy's autopsy were under when they did that autopsy. And so you're absolutely right. Not only would the autopsy have been done properly, and Kennedy's was not, um, but I think that a lot of the questions that have swirled around what the evidence shows would have been answered uh, in a way that would probably radically upend what ultimately ended up being the, the quote, official conclusion of his autopsy, that he was shot uh, and killed by two shots that had been fired at him from above and behind, i.e. from Oswald. Yeah, that that probably would not have withstood uh, a proper uh, autopsy by a forensic pathologist for reasons we'll discuss as we go on. Uh, Before we get to the information about what the Parkland doctors themselves had to say and contribute about Kennedy's wounds, uh, tell us, both Jim and Gary, who was Clint Hill? And what did he see and experience on November 22nd, 1963? Well, Clint Hill was a Secret Service agent that was traveling in the car immediately behind the the limousine that uh, Jack Kennedy was uh, 
uh, riding in. And when the shots rang out, he ran from the limousine following Kennedy's limousine and climbed aboard uh, Kennedy's limousine. Uh, Jackie Kennedy had crawled out on the back of the limousine after the shots rang out and, and struck JFK. And she climbed out on the, on the limousine to grab a piece of tissue that had flown from Kennedy's head with the uh, fatal shot to the head. And he, you know, helped nudge her back in the car. And then he was laying over uh, the limousine as they rode into um, uh, Parkland Hospital. And he, and I will quote him uh, directly because it's, it's, it's always good to have these, uh, these quotes. Okay. Um, uh, pardon me. Um, so he essentially described it, and I'll try to find it. I'm flipping through the pages where I, where I describe this, um, uh, that there was a, that, that there was a hole that in, in the back of Jack Kennedy's head. Um, and unfortunately, I, I apologize for not being organized to find that immediately, but, uh, uh, there are, um, because not only, uh, did he describe a, a defect in the back of the head, uh, so did a couple of other Secret Service agents as well. Uh, it, it was not as well as FBI agents, um, uh, and, and other people who were there. Um, they all described a defect involving the back of JFK's skull. Um, and, uh, well, you know, I, again, I apologize. I thought that I've had it well marked here and I don't, uh, suffice it to say <laughs> that not only did he describe a defect involving the rear of the head, uh, so did, uh, 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 uh Kellerman, uh, another Secret Service agent who was driving, uh, in the car with limousine, uh, that Kennedy was in and, um, uh, as well as many of the Parkland doctors, and virtually all of them virtually uniformly described the defect that involved the right rear portion of the head. Um, and, uh, of course, we now know that, uh, that, uh, uh, that that seems to have been not only universally noted at Parkland Hospital, but even though the government tried to pretend <clears throat> that the autopsy witnesses didn't see any such wound, uh, they suppressed the interviews they took with the autopsy witnesses, and the autopsy witnesses who were there at the autopsy said the same thing as the Parkland doctors did. Um, so we have virtually completely uniform accounting of, of the defect in JFK's head, and 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 it and uh, as you said, it, it 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 it's a scandal that uh, that the Parkland doctors were not uh, uh, were basically ignored, and they attempted to try to refute them, and they agreed with. Both Clint Hill, who was laying over Jack Kennedy as they drove to Parkland and helped get him out of the limousine into the emergency room, as well as the other Secret Service agents, uh, physicians, uh, the chief of neurosurgery uh, uh, at uh, Kemp Clark in, in Dallas, uh, Park, Dallas's Parkland Hospital. They were all very much in agreement with that. See, see, one of the things that we tried to do in the film. Okay, in both versions, because I think it's very important, uh, is that we tried to make clear the first day testimony at this Parkland news conference. And we tried to explain to the public just what, uh, Malcolm Perry and Kemp Clark said at this time, because it's very important. You know, I think most people will tell you that the the closer you are to the crime in time, that's supposed to be the testimony that you consider to be the most valid. Well, Kemp Clark was a chief of neurosurgery at Parkland, all right? And so he's a very important witness. I mean, a really important witness. And Perry was the guy who went ahead and executed the tracheostomy on Kennedy's neck in order to insert a breathing apparatus, right? Now, for whatever reason, and it's never been really explained, there is no film of that live news conference, which is incredible 
all right, that there's no film that's ever been found of that, all right? And in fact, the Secret Service tried to hide the transcript of that news conference from the Warren Commission. And by the way, this is right in Doug Horn's book. They had the transcript, and they lied to the Warren Commission about possessing it. But there were two very important things that were disclosed at that news conference. Uh, number one, that Perry said no less than three times, and I'm sure Gary will correct me if I make a mistake on this. All right. He said no less than three times that the anterior neck wound seemed to him to be a wound of entrance. And the other doctor, Clark, described a very serious wound in the back of Kennedy's head, which did not resemble an entrance wound. So what you essentially had at this news conference was two qualified doctors giving differing testimony that Kennedy was hit by the from the front. Isn't that correct, Gary? Yeah, no, I, I uh, fortunately I did finally find the quotes, uh, by the way. <clears throat> and, and I do want to get into the issue of Kemp Clark, who was the professor of neurosurgery, the senior most attending physician, and he took care of uh, Jack Kennedy. He's the one that pronounced Jack Kennedy dead when attempts to resuscitation failed. But let's go back to the Secret Service, service agents, okay? This is what uh, Clint Hill <clears throat> reported that the wound was, quote, in the right rear portion of the skull, JFK's skull. Secret Service agent Roy Kellerman told the Warren Commission, and this is a quote again, that the, the defect was to the left of the right ear, that is, behind the right ear, i.e. the back of the head, and a little high, <clears throat> i.e., and also repeated the rear portion of the head. Another quote uh, from uh, the Secret Service agent Roy Kellerman. <clears throat> and similarly, uh, William Greer uh, manually uh, demonstrated the defects location of him, and he also put his hand in the back of his head. But let's go on and let's say, yeah, one of the th counter arguments to this has always been, well, people have different views, there's an inconsistent accounts, their memories are bad. So, <clears throat> but the one thing that most people will say is probably pretty reliable is what people say or write down on the day of the uh, uh, event. <laughs> because notes written right away are pretty consistent. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of them that were written that day, but it, it's worth going through Kemp Clark, who is the professor of neurosurgery. <clears throat> um, he wrote, on the day of the assassination, there was, quote, a, a large wound beginning in the right occiput. The occiput is the back of the skull. <clears throat> There's a large wound beginning in the right occiput extending into the parietal region. Much of the skull appeared to be gone at the brief examination. Okay. He, now, a similar description, and you can find all these references and all these quotes, you know, taken right from the official records, was repeated in various versions, but all very closely hewing to the idea there was a defect in the rear of the hall by the following doctors at Parkland Hospital. Professor Marion uh, Thomas Jenkins, the chief of anesthesia who sat at Kennedy's head while they were trying to resuscitate him, as anesthesiologists do. Uh, Malcolm Perry, uh, Robert McClellan, Charge Carrico, uh, Charles Carrico, Ronald Coy Jones, Gene Aiken, on and on and on. They all said the same thing. They all said there was a defect in the rear of the head. Um, uh, <clears throat> and <clears throat> on Perry's uh, remark about the entrance wound, they really did not want that entrance wound there, and they pressured Terry, Perry tremendously to do that. And, and he ultimately caved, although later privately admitted it to other people, uh, and more than one other person privately, that he was quite convinced it was an entrance wound. Now, this isn't actually a forum, I don't think, an appropriate forum for getting into a long debate about whether it's an entrance or exit wound. But what's more important is that the government decided what the wounds were going to be and what they're going to look like. And, and, and ultimately they basically tried to force those conclusions onto the public. Uh, and they did that, for example, in, in the most shameful way in what some people have called the last investigation into the Kennedy assassination. 
uh, by investigation, I mean not just releasing documents like the review board did in the 1990s, but investigation, and that's of the House Select Committee on Assassinations. <clears throat> the House Select Committee on Assassinations um, was concerned about, quite concerned about, the differences in the wounds described by the Parkland doctors and the uh, 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 the wounds that's described uh, by the autopsy pathologist in the autopsy report. What are the differences? Well, all the Parkland doctors uh, and witnesses there said that the defect was in the right rear of the head. The autopsy report and, and the autopsy photographs seem to show it toward the front of the skull on the right side, not in the rear at all, rear of, the, of JFK's skull. According to the autopsy photographs, the originals of which I've seen show no defect behind the right ear, <clears throat> even though, as I just mentioned, uh, everyone uh, agreed that was the case. So the House Select Committee had to try to, you know, settle this very difficult, knotty problem. And so it wrote <clears throat> that, <clears throat> uh, uh, the, that, and this is a direct quote from a House Select Committee uh, report, okay, that critics of the Warren Commission's medical evidence findings uh, uh, have found, that's their typo, on the observations recorded by the Parkland Hospital doctors. They believe that it is unlikely that trained medical personnel would be so consistently in error regarding the nature of the wound, even though their recollections were not based on careful examinations of the wounds. In disagreement with the observations of the Parkland doctors are the 26 people who were present at the autopsy. All of those interviewed who attended the autopsy corroborated the general location of the wounds as depicted in the photographs that is nothing in the back of the head, and none had different accounts. It appears more probable that the observations of the Parkland doctors are incorrect. <clears throat> and <clears throat> it supported this with staff interviews with the uh, persons who were present at the autopsy. But when they issued their report, they did not produce the witness statements from the autopsy witnesses. They just said that they had all agreed with the autopsy photographs and they, and they disagreed with the Parkland doctors. Well, Oliver Stone's film JFK comes along. The government is shamed into releasing documents that, uh, that had been withheld in a, in a, in, improperly and secretly and out spill lots and lots of documents to the AARB, including these witness statements. Now these witness statements from the, from the autopsy, uh, who were present at the autopsy, that were interviewed by the House Select Committee on Assassinations, there was no national security reason to have kept them secret. There wasn't. But out come all these uh, witnesses, <clears throat> statements, and they drew diagrams. And guess what? Virtually all of them agreed with the Parkland doctors. In other words, the whoever wrote this section of the uh, House Select Committee's report uh, basically said that the witnesses at the autopsy refuted the Parkland doctors, but the documents themselves, their own hand-signed witness statements show that they all agreed with the Parkland doctors there were defect in the rear of the head. So this is how you see evidence being shaped to conform with the official conclusion. I, I've written about this. I, I, I first ran across this when I was in a debate with a, a staunch Warren Commission defender, uh, John McAdams, uh, who, is, who, who quoted that very sentence that, you know, none of the autopsy witnesses had differing accounts. They all agreed with the autopsy photographs. There was no defect in the back of the head. And I had just gotten a tro trove of declassified documents and was going through them. And I said, it says, I, I was shocked to, to read him quoting it, but I had all the HSCA volumes. I pulled it up and he was absolutely right that that's what they said. But I pulled open the, the, the autopsy, uh, uh, witness uh, statements before the House Select Committee assassination and witness after witness after witness basically proved that that statement was a lie. But that's how this whole narrative has been shaped. The government preferred, the government's preferred conclusion um, uh, is put forward and, you know, everyone from the New York Times uh, on down all the, you know, uh, mainstream establishment media uh, fall in line and salute and basically uh, uh, it, uh, other government investigations uh, they pick who they want on these panels to investigate it, knowing what kind of conclusion they're going to get, which is going to be a pro-government conclusion. And everybody, you know, uh, cheers at the results of uh, investigations that are far from being independent. In any case, that's a long Dave, way of there's, there, there's, Dave, there's something even better about this that Gary, I, I would really like Gary to talk about, is that when Gary tried to confront 
the probable authors of this report about who the heck wrote that false statement. Go ahead. Tell them what happened, Gary, when you tried to nail them on this. Well, there are a couple of things. Uh, Not long after I had discovered all these documents, I was in a debate with the former chairman of the forensics pathology panel named Michael Bodden. He's a New York City coroner, internationally renowned forensics expert. He chaired the forensics pathology panel. And these are the guys that looked at the medical autopsy evidence. And they concluded with a single exception, that Sirowek, that, oh, yes, this is quite consistent with Oswald having done it. And they agreed with prior, you know, essentially with the results of the original autopsy. And so there I was standing on this, you know, it, it, you know, I don't know, there were five or six hundred people in the audience. And so I got up afterward and and I quoted the House Select Committee that he had been a major part of saying that the autopsy witnesses have refuted the Parkland doctors. Then I showed pictures of the diagrams and quoted the very witnesses whose witness statements had been suppressed all these years and only brought up by the uh, uh, Assassination Records Review Board. And witness after witness after witness, Sir Weck was on the stage and Michael Bodden was on the stage. And then I looked at Michael and uh, Bodden and Sir Weck. I said, have either of you ever seen any of these interviews? Neither of them have. So not only not only were the forensic pathology panelists who were supposed to be studying the medical autopsy evidence kept in the dark about what autopsy witnesses said, that they were led to believe that the autopsy witnesses had refuted the Parkland doctors, which was exactly the opposite of what was true. So then I, I ran into and 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 I quoted um, uh, a, a couple of the uh, the chairman uh, of the. House Select Committee was Robert Blakey. I asked him directly. He absolutely denied it. Um, uh, I, there was another fellow named Andy Purdy. I asked him, and he very much denied it. In fact, he said, well, I'm not very happy. I mean, his only response was to say, well, I'm not very happy with how that uh, section was written. <laughs> I mean, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, he's not very happy with how this is, was written. How else would you write a lie that would make it sound, you know, more palatable? Now, now, by the way, that's important because Andy Purdy was the chief investigator on the pathology panel. All right. Yeah. Yeah. More importantly, as I reread the pathology, now what I found from a, a, a brilliant new book that I'm recommending people read by Russell Kent, uh, JFK medical betrayal. It's, it's excellent. Um, is that apparently the forensic pathology panel's report was written in large part by the, the forensic doctors, but Blakey wrote part of it and rewrote part of it and revised part of it. And, and so did Andy Purdy. I did not know that. That's new news. That's something that Russell Kent came out. More importantly, um, uh, in, in looking at forensic evidence, which I obviously, I, I, I think that the crux of this case is now moved to medical autopsy forensic evidence. And I think that that, it's very, I'm delighted, Dave, that, that, that you're, you know, continuing to pursue this because I think that there's, it's an exciting area of the case and a lot of stuff's coming out that no one, almost no one knows about. Uh, in any case, as, as they were investigating, as the House Flood County was investigating this, they invited completely in, first of all, most of the people on the forensic pathology panel, with the exception of Wecht, had very close ties to, to government, you know, unlike Cyril. They were all also tied very closely to other investigators who had signed on to the original autopsy findings. In other words, these were not independent investigators. These were people who were, who were, who were loyal to, to one another loyal to their government more than they were loyal to the truth. That would be a statement I'd make and I'd stand and I'd be happy to argue that with anyone. But in any case, um, the, 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 all these, they, but they did include, um, uh, a, an independent, uh, pathologist, uh, to come in and, and take a look at this sort of stuff. And he was completely ignored and they went along with, uh, with John Latimer's stuff. Um, uh, they, they did not even, in other words, there was a presentation and Russell Kent goes into this in much greater detail. There was a presentation made by, uh, a, 
outstanding forensic pathologist. I'm looking, trying to see if I can find his name. John Nichols. John Nichols made a presentation, uh, had, uh, and, and John Nichols was a professor of pathology and an internationally regarded uh, forensic pathologist, a professor at the University of Kansas. And he pres- he made a presentation to the House Select Committee on Assassinations, and uh, and they didn't go they because it was basically inconsistent with uh, a lone gunman scenario. They suppressed it. You don't even know it's there. I don't know how. G- Gary, uh, Gary, I can't. Uh, this is the first I ever heard of this. That's what I'm talking about, Jim. Russell Kent's books got it. Yeah. They suppressed that and they went along with this loopy anti-scientific nonsense that uh, the urologist John Latimer uh, came oh up with. Oh, my that God, that's shocking. That's, that's, <laughs> that's who they went with. That's who they went with, and they suppressed the others. Now, I have not asked Fira Wecht, who I'm personal friends with, whether he was familiar with the research done by John Nichols, by Professor Nichols, uh, the recognized forensic pathologist, uh, that, whether he ever saw that report. But it was clear that they were shaping the evidence uh, to support Oswald's sole guilt uh, and were willing to ignore much better credential scientists, much better science, much better facts, and, and willing to lie about the facts they had in their possession. That's how this sort of stuff works. I By mean, the way, you know, Dave, let, let me tell you something, um, why that's such an important point. When Cyril Wecht could not do the uh, medical evidence at the Clay Shaw trial because he hadn't, he wouldn't do it unless he saw the x-rays and pictures at the National Archives, and they wouldn't let him see it, at, at least at first. Garrison called in this guy, Dr. John Nichols from the University of Kansas, all right? John Nichols made such an impression on the jury and on the gallery that the defense for Clay Shaw decided at that point, well, we're going to have to call in somebody big time to neutralize what Nichols just did. Because by using the Zapruder film and and showing it in slow motion, Nichols testified that, in his opinion, Kennedy was hit from the front, all right? And he supplied some other evidence of that also. So they they went ahead and they made a they made a, a mess even messier by calling in Dr. Pierre Fink. <laughs> okay. No, 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 no. The no, counter no, articles. No, no, no. Well, uh yeah, maybe they did, but they 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 more importantly uh uh brought in uh Boswell. That you, you go ahead with it. Oh, uh, oh, okay. <laughs> okay. See, well, after well, Fink revealed too many too much good stuff. Okay, like, for example, which I think everybody knows, that the autopsy doctors were not allowed to dissect the back wound, all right? The people in Washington who were running this for the Justice Department, they said, we have to do something. Uh, Pierre Fink has just laid an egg, all right? So they call in another autopsy doctor, and that's Thornton Boswell, and they give him instructions. You have to go down to New Orleans and neutralize what Fink has just said down there. All right. And so they actually went ahead and they flew Boswell down to New Orleans where he was met by Harry Connick, who was the Department of Justice local lawyer down there. All right. And they, he escorted him to a hotel room where they had Fink's testimony. All right. Lined up for him. All right. And he was going to go ahead. But at the last minute, at the last minute, this was called off. And I believe the reason I think Gary will agree with me. They would have had a very hard time using Boswell to discredit Fink because Fink, I believe he was the only forensic pathologist of, of the three. OK. Uh, and so how, how how could you have a guy? With lower credentials, just creating somebody with higher credentials. Yeah, no, I think that, uh, just to flesh that out, just for, for some people that are that this may be an obscure storyline. Uh, Fink is brought in uh, to get to to try to reverse uh, the influence that, that Professor Nichols had had, who was a very credentialed uh, forensic pathologist. So they brought in Pierre Fink. <clears throat> Pierre Fink 
was not a practicing forensic pathologist. He did have the credentials as a forensic pathologist, but he basically, his job had been for many years just reviewing the work of other people, not standing at an autopsy table, table doing forensic autopsies. But they brought him in anyhow. And then he got on there and he, and he testified that after bobbing and weaving and bobbing and weaving, and you'll find a full, uh, 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 the, the full transcript of this in, uh, in, in Jim's book, it's, it's, it's mind blowing, um, that he's asked, you know, well, why didn't you dissect the back wound? And he went back and forth and he would not answer the question. Finally, the, uh, prosecuting attorney directed the judge to insist that he answer the question. And after having bobbed and weaved and giving completely irrelevant answers, he finally said, well, I was ordered not to. And he said, well, who ordered? He said, I don't remember. I, I can't know. Was it a doctor? No, it wasn't a doctor. It was some kind of a general who was in the room, told them that they couldn't dissect the back wound. Now, so most people think that the autopsy was conducted by doctors and they directed, and they were the ones that had ultimate authority over what to do. Uh, apparently not. And so this, you know, apparently the generals were telling him, no, no, we can't do that. And and also they asked to see Jack Kennedy's, uh, they also see, to see the clothing um, uh, and, uh, and permission was denied because they said it would be of academic interest only. Well, it turns out that the clothing was probably in the room already uh, because Kellerman, Secret Service agent Kellerman, said that he had the clothing uh, with him at the time. You know, he, he had the clothing with him, and he was in the autopsy room. So all they'd have to do is just call him up, you know, off of, uh, you know, one of the one of the seats overlooking the autopsy table and say, would you, would you please give us the clothing? But the, clearly the, they, they got – Doctors who were not competent to do the autopsy, and I'm going to get back to the business about uh, about uh, Boswell, that, and uh, in a moment, the guys that were not competent to do a, a Bos, uh, an autopsy, a, a gunshot autopsy, they give him a bottle, uh, a body. They say, okay, he was shot from above and behind. Uh, here's the body. Tell us how it happened that way, and. And so when you read the original autopsy report, it says three shots were, you know, were heard from above and behind, basically, and Kennedy fell forward. Well, <laughs> uh, that's not what happened at all. But that's what they were told happened. They were given a body. They don't know how to, they don't know what they're doing. And, but they came up with findings that would be con- fully consistent with the conclusions that, with the facts that they thought to be true, that Kennedy was shot from above and behind, and that he fell forward with a fatal shot, which, of course, he did not. But anyway, so Boswell, Boswell has flown down there to refute this Fink guy who just revealed it. We were, pardon my French, uh, we were told, you know, not, we were, we were ordered not to dissect the back wound, and so he's down there, he's up all night long reading the, the testimony. They don't call him in, and they don't call him in for the reasons that uh, Jim suggested, and that is that not only was Fink the only credential guy in the autopsy room, even though he wasn't somebody who actually did autopsies and hadn't done one in two years when he stepped into JFK's morgue, um, uh, but he was the expert that Boswell and Humes had gotten in to help them with the autopsy in the first place. So this is this was the expert that they had gotten to help with Jack Kennedy's autopsy, and they were going to undermine him. He, he had uh, forensic credentials that Boswell didn't have. Now, there's another ugly little bit of business about Jay Thornton Boswell, who, by the way, I spoke to on the phone one time. In any case, uh, Boswell, later on, um, uh, after the autopsy, original autopsy, in 1966, wrote the Justice Department because there was a lot of flurry about, about questions about the autopsy and how come no independent autopsy physicians or forensic pathologists reviewed it, how come it was only done by the government, how come it's all secret. So there were uh, books by Mark Lane, uh, by Epstein, uh, other things in, in the popular press, like magazine. So uh, Boswell writes a letter uh, to the Justice Department asking that a uh, that an independent team look at the uh, at the forensic uh, uh, or at the, at the autopsy and review it. Uh, well, that's what we thought happened, but then Boswell admitted what actually happened. He'd gotten a call from uh, a Justice Department official, a guy named Carl Erdley, who said, would you write a letter requesting a, a, a review of the autopsy? And so he wrote a letter, uh, uh, you know, to the Justice Department uh, requesting a letter, uh, requesting a review of the autopsy material. Interestingly enough, the letter was not written on any kind of uh, professional letterhead. It was written, as was pointed out, 
40 years ago uh, by Harold Weisberg on government-sized paper, which is a half inch shorter than uh, than regular uh, letterhead, and with no return address, uh, nothing. He just wrote that, and apparently the Justice Department wrote this letter for him. He signed it requesting an independent audit. Whereupon, now, why do they want an independent audit? That's part one of Boswell's having been a team player here. Uh, I'll give you the part two real quickly. I want to go back to this in a moment. Uh, he'd been, he'd, they'd done a shoddy autopsy, and I'm not saying it is a shoddy autopsy. Warren Commission defenders like Michael Bodden uh, called it a botched autopsy. So did a lot of other people. It was absolutely botched uh, by both Warren critics and Warren defenders alike. But when Martin Luther King was shot, he got a call again by this guy, Carl Erdley, who put him up to, you know, asking for an independent uh, examination. Uh, and the Carl Erdley is also the guy who got him to go down there to testify against Fink, although he ne- never was called to the stand. And Carl Erdley called him back. He says, listen, Martin Luther King's just been shot uh, in Memphis. Uh, would you go down there and supervise the uh, autopsy? <laughs> now, here's a guy who, you, you can't make this stuff up. Here's a guy who had who had been part of the botched autopsy team, uh, who had uh, basically uh, been shown a willingness to basically back up the government, uh, call for an independent, quote, independent investigation of their autopsy material, uh, autopsy uh, uh, findings. Uh, And now he's being, because, you know, he's obviously proven his loyalty to the government, if not his competence as as, as, as a, as a forensic pathologist, and he's he's the guy that they go to. He's the go-to guy they go to. That's how these things work. So, but but the the question was, why did they want, and and how did they go about getting that first semi-independent or quasi-independent or putatively independent uh, re-examination? Well, that was the the Clark panel's investigation, and the Clark panel was uh, a panel that was put together by Ramsey Clark. Uh, to reinvestigate the medical and autopsy evidence. The report was kept secret for a long time after it was released. And it was done, it was done as, as the chief pathologist, also very deeply connected to the U.S. government, a guy named Russell Fisher, the, the medical examiner and forensic pathologist in Baltimore, Maryland. He was a guy that was picked. He, he had huge ties, uh, to government, uh, grants and government funding and, uh, and, and it was picked. And he admitted, I mean, you, you can't believe this stuff, but he admitted himself. He says, well, you know, I got a call from uh, Ramsey Clark. Now imagine you may be an important individual yourself, but when the, when the attorney general of the United States, Ramsey Clark calls you up and asks you something, it says Ramsey Clark had apparently seen galleys of a then not yet published book, uh, Tink Thompson's book, Six Seconds in Dallas. And, uh, and, and there's a lot of stuff in there that, that he wanted him, uh, to, to help in refuting. And would you, you know, conduct it? So, so it was basically, he was given his marching orders. Uh, Russell Fisher, who was the head of the, the Ramsey, of the, I'm sorry, the Clark panel, um, was, uh, was told, we, you know, we need to, to uh, you know, we need to have something to refute some of the junk that is in Tink Thompson's new book or new then upcoming book. And he knew what his charge was going in. And, and, and you pick somebody who has lots of government contracts, as uh, Russell Fisher did, it gets lots of government funding, as Russell Fisher did, and you tell him what you want. And, of course, the Clark panel comes up, and, and basically with some significant errors having been noticed, uh, 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 basically backs up the idea, two shots from behind, Oswald must have done it. That's how these things work. And... Uh, and, and, and not until you dig into the weeds on this, do you begin seeing how it doesn't seem to matter that much to me what kind of a, quote, independent examinations you're talking about. That's the fix is always put in when the panelists are are, uh, are chosen, just like the Warren Commission's was by putting Alan Dulles, uh, the fired former head of the CIA, disgraced head of the CIA that Jack Kennedy had fired. You put him in there. Uh, you, you know what you're going to get. In any case, uh, we've gone pretty far afield, but uh, you may want to enter in on this, Jim. Uh, no, the, the only thing I want would want to say about the Clark panel, you know, they kept their uh, findings secret for quite a while, and they suddenly released them on the eve of the Clay Shaw trial. <laughs> so, you know, was 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 there was that a coincidence? I don't think so. Yeah, mm. Jim, there's a post for that. 
I mean, the postscript to that is that uh, Garrison had uh, made a motion to get the original autopsy evidence, and they didn't want to give it to him, so they gave him some some of the stuff from the Clark panel, but they did not want to give him original autopsy photographs, X-rays, and other evidence that that Garrison thought, quite rightly, I should say, would have disproved uh, Oswald's sole guilt. A couple points that I want to uh, underscore for the audience. And again, both of you are experts in this information. And this is not something that a lot of this discussion uh, will be, I think, uh, more intelligible for the audience if we fix a few points. Uh, uh, some of what we touched on. This is the larger context in which the Secret Service's confiscation of Kennedy's body from Parkland Hospital and Dr. Ulo's on the evening of the 22nd of 63 should be examined. And then when Clint Hill says he could look right into the skull uh, as the limousine, the Kennedy's limousine was speeding away, uh, something we've spoken about in the past, Jim, and that is uh, the pressure put by Secret Service agent Elmer Moore on Malcolm Perry about the throat wound. And we've also discussed how the Secret Service apparently deep-sixed the videotape of the conference of doctors Kent Clark talking about the large wound in the back of the head and Dr. Malcolm Perry gave at Parkland. Uh, something that's very important to him, and that is document 1327C as in Charlie, and obviously, Gary, feel free to weigh in on this, but in the film, uh, Douglas Horn of the ARRB underscores what that document points out, and I wonder if you would expand on that and the significance of it. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming... I don't, I don't know that document by identification number. If you can tell me what's in it, I'm, I might or might not know... Uh, um, uh, the content of it, but I certainly wouldn't know it by uh, by its file number. This was the document in which basically Malcolm Perry's uh, initial uh, analysis of the throat wound as an entrance wound was underscored. And then, of course, Perry was pressured by Elmer Moore. And then the Warren Commission basically uh, eclipsed anything he had to say after that. This was a document that in the four-hour version, uh, Douglas Horn sets forth. Well, see, the pressure on... I do have something to add to that, but go ahead. The pressure on Perry began almost immediately. Uh, In the film, The Parkland Doctors, which was supposed to be shown by CBS a couple of years ago, but for some reason, they dropped it from their schedule. All right. Um, there is a scene where one of the doctors says near the end of the film, as Perry turned around, a guy in a suit and tie grabbed him by the arm and said, don't you ever say that again. Now, what's so remarkable about that is not just that the, the arrogance of whoever this gentleman was. But the fact that this this conference was over approximately two hours after Kennedy was killed. Can you imagine how fast this cover-up was being snapped on? That they knew that they had to shut up Perry that quickly, you know, from ever saying that that front neck wound was it was was an entrance wound. Now, another new thing that I've discovered is a report by Martin Stedman, who was a journalist for the uh, for the uh, the Herald Tribune. All right, he did an interview with Perry a few days after the assassination, a few days after that press conference. And this is the only place I've seen Perry discuss this. Perry said that night he was getting phone calls from Bethesda. And he said that the autopsy doctors were telling him right then and there that he had to take back his story 
about the an- anterior neck wound being one of entrance. And Perry said, I, you know, he was trying to resist this. All right. And they said, look, if you don't change your story, we're going to draw you up before a medical board and we're going to remove your license unless you change your story. Okay. Now, I don't believe for five seconds that Humes and Boswell were behind that phone call. All right. But I do believe that since there were so many military guys in that room that night, those were the guys pushing them into making that phone call to Perry. Now, I, I believe what you're talking about, Dave, uh, is the transcript of that press conference, which was suppressed by everybody, I believe. Okay. And I also believe that the Secret Service very likely might have confiscated the films of that press conference, which again shows you just how quickly that this whole cover-up thing was snapped on the case. It's really mind-boggling when you think about it. Uh, a couple of quick points uh, for both uh, Jim and Gary. Uh, yeah, a quick, uh, quick uh, question. Jim, would you please... There was a, uh, an interview, a published interview with Perry by, I forget the journalist's name. If you have a copy of that, I'd really like to have a copy of that. All right, Gary. All right. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dave. I didn't mean to uh, by, by the way, I want to point out to the audience uh, the uh, value and rarity of what they are experiencing. Here you have two of the foremost researchers in both the JFK assassination, and as as the uh, interview has illustrated, they are sharing information in addition to uh, with, with the audience, with each other, some of which uh, was unknown. So in a sense, this uh, interview could be viewed as history-making in that regard. A couple of points. Uh, Nurse Audrey Bell is quoted in the documentary in a couple of different ways. What did she have to say about the back of JFK's head? Well, uh, as you point out, she, uh, there's a couple of interesting things about Audrey Bell. Number one, I think Audrey Bell also spoke uh, to Perry the next day, and I read reports that Audrey Bell said that Perry came in the next day after the assassination and looked horrible. She said, God, what's wrong with you? And he said, I was up all night um, handling phone calls from, from Bethesda, from the autopsy. Number one. Number two, another thing that she said, which, by the way, was corroborated by Robert Grossman, a now professor, maybe emeritus of neurosurgery, who was uh, the second neurosurgeon present. Um, she described that there was a defect in the back of Jack Kennedy's head as well as all of the other witnesses, Kemp Clark, the professor, and everybody else. But more importantly, she said that she asked uh, during the during the resuscitation efforts, she came into the room and she says, you know, so what's going on? You know, uh, where's the injury? And she says that a doctor picked up Kennedy's head and showed the defect in the back of his head. Well, everybody said, well, she's just a nurse. What a nurse is no, they're stupid, right? They don't know anything. Well, guess what? She's not the only person that said that. Uh, Robert Grossman said that, the professor of neurosurgery who was there with Kemp Clark. Now, if anybody thinks that a professor of neurosurgery who's treating a patient who has a head injury isn't going to examine a head injury, just doesn't know how neurosurgery works. Um, uh, in my years of training, I did a year of internal medicine at a major trauma center, UCLA's Harvard General Hospital, and a year of general surgery at UCLA's Harvard General Hospital. And uh, I, I've worked with neurosurgeons and worked in neurosurgery. And let me tell you, and I saw trauma cases coming in, and when the neurosurgeon would come in, all they really focused on, I mean, not all, but but they, they especially focused on the head injury. So for a neurosurgeon to say that, that they, for, you know, Warren Commission defenders to say that, well, these doctors really didn't examine him very carefully. You know, how would they have known where, that he had a defect in the rear of his head because he was lying flat on a gurney face up? Rubbish. Rubbish. It's just not how it works if you're a trauma doctor. It's not how it worked when I was a trauma doctor in those days. I was a trauma doctor for a while. I was the admitting trauma resident at Harvard General Hospital. So, but Audrey Bell, to, to get to your question, described, as did all the other witnesses, including the witnesses at, at the autopsy, there was a defect in the back of, of his head. Uh, and she said that Perry told her, or at least the reports are, that Perry told her he was up all night uh, fielding uh, calls from uh, from uh, the autopsy from Bethesda. 
I'd, I'd like to see an independent confirmation of this or corroboration of this by the report that uh, uh, Jim Eugenio just uh, gave. I'd love to see that because uh, it further proves. Because one of the things I think is really silly about this case, Dave, and I don't mean to, to wander too far off field here, is that it's often said, well, you know, the doctors didn't know that he had an entrance, he, that there was a, 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 a bullet hole in his throat. Uh, they just saw that he'd had a, a, a tracheostomy. Now, a tracheostomy, you make an incision over the windpipe in the low portion of the neck so you can get direct access to your uh, uh, a windpipe to, to give somebody oxygen. You do that in an emergency situation like they tried to do that with Jack Kennedy. They did do that with Jack Kennedy. Uh, ultimately to no avail, but they just saw a wound there. They thought that's all it was and that they didn't know there was a, 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 a wound there in the throat. Well, it's very hard for me to imagine that if they were calling back and forth to uh, a Parkland hospital to talk to Perry or anyone else, they would not have known that. And there's other independent corroboration that there, that they did know about that throat wound that night, including a sort of a, a tacit quiet admission by Dr. Boswell once by night. He said, yeah, we knew about the throat wound that night uh, because they're supposed to have said, well, <clears throat> uh, we we found a back wound. We didn't know where the bullet went. We took x-rays. We couldn't find it. We didn't know anything until the next day. Uh, but we heard that there was a throat wound and we figured out that that's what had happened. Uh, I think this is, again, these people, it's all CYA, uh, cover your, cover your backside and, 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 and being absolutely dishonest. Right? There's lots of other evidence of their dishonesty of, of the autopsy doctor's dishonesty, but, uh, if we get into the issue of the autopsy photographs, we can explore that as well. But well, there, there is a lot more to talk about. Unfortunately, we are running low on time for this interview. I would note simply there is a book by Dr. Charles Crenshaw, who was a third year resident at Parkland, and he says in no uncertain terms that JFK was shot from the front. Uh, Jim and Gary, uh, information, uh, kennedysandking.com, where can they obtain JFK Revisited and Destiny Betrayed, the two versions of the documentary and the book? Well, the book you can get at Abbey Books or Barnes and Noble or Amazon, okay? It's called JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. The the DVD you can get at Amazon.com. And I believe we're back in the top 10 again this week, which, oh, is, right. which is amazing, okay? Um, by the way, that book you just talked about, Gary wrote the afterword for the reissue of Crenshaw's book. And I and I have to say, I believe that's one of the best essays I've ever read on the medical evidence. So to give my partner here a plug. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much, uh, Jimmy. It's, it's more than an afterward. It's a hundred page segment with lots of diagrams. Right. <laughs> um, um, and um, uh, and and it, it basically outlines a lot of the medical evidence, and it's about uh, Charles Crenshaw. Now, the, the interesting thing. I, it, this the business about uh, Charles Crenshaw, Dave, is an important one, and that is that um, he wrote a book called Conspiracy of Silence, and basically said that they were all told to shut shut the hell up about the auto- about uh, Kennedy and not mention anything. And uh, his uh, book came out after the film JFK came out, and he basically said, "Look, uh, the wounds very much looked to me like he'd been shot from the front, and, and uh, came out the back." Well, the next year in 1992. Uh, the journal, the American Medical Association's journal, uh, the Journal of American Medical Association, uh, came out with a series of articles de- uh, uh, defending the Warren Commission, attacking Oliver Stone, and specifically attacking Charles Crenshaw. Okay, we're going to have to take this up in a future interview because we are all out of time here. Uh, thank Jimmy you, thank you very much. Well, it, it is my pleasure and the audience's pleasure to have someone who not only is an expert, but uh, Jim, you mentioned in our Zoom talk that it was Gary, who and, and it was corroborated here, who uncovered the House Select Committee on Assassinations' deliberate misrepresentation of the Bethesda autopsy witnesses' contravention. 
uh, alleged contravention of what the Parkland doctors saw. So this is this is history making investigation. Uh, Jim is also a regular on Black Ops Radio, and his website Kennedy'sandKing.com is a supreme go-to source for information about the killings of both Kennedy brothers, Martin Luther King, and Malcolm X. This concludes for the record program number 1273, interview number 12 of Jim Diagemio and Dr. Gary Aguilar. This is being recorded on November 30th of the year 2022. This is Dave Emery saying thanks for listening.